This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, online at reformedforum.org. This is Reformed Classics, audio productions of classic Reformed works. Today we're continuing our presentation of John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, translated by Henry Beveridge. Book 1, Chapter 13, The Unity of the Divine Essence in Three Persons Taught in Scripture, from the foundation of the world. This chapter consists of two parts. The former delivers the orthodox doctrine concerning the Holy Trinity. This occupies from sections 1 through 21 and may be divided into four heads. The first, treating of the meaning of person, including both the term and the thing meant by it. Sections 2 through 6, the second, proving the deity of the Son. Section 7 through 13, the third, the deity of the Holy Spirit, section 14 and 15, and the fourth, explaining what is to be held concerning the Holy Trinity. The second part of the chapter refutes certain heresies which have arisen, particularly in our age, in opposition to this orthodox doctrine. This occupies from section 21 to the end. Sections 1. Scripture in teaching that the essence of God is immense and spiritual, refutes not only idolaters and the foolish wisdom of the world, but also the Manichees and Anthropomorphites, these latter briefly refuted. 2. In this one essence are three persons, yet so that neither is there a triple God, nor is the simple essence of God divided, meaning of the word person in this discussion, three hypostases in God or the essence of God. 3. Objection of those who, in this discussion, reject the use of the word person. Answer 1. That it is not a foreign term, but is employed for the explanation of sacred mysteries. 4. Answer continued. 2. The Orthodox compelled to use the terms trinity, subsistence, and person. Examples from the case of the Arians and Sibelians. 5. Answer continued. 3. The ancient church, though differing somewhat in the explanation of these terms, agree in substance. Proofs from Hilary, Jerome, Augustine, in their use of the words essence, substance, hypostasis. 4. Provided the orthodox meaning is retained, there should be no dispute about mere terms, but those who object to the terms usually favor the Arian and Sibelian heresy. Section 1. The doctrine of Scripture concerning the immensity and the spirituality of the essence of God should have the effect not only of dissipating the wild dreams of the vulgar, but also of refuting the subtleties of a profane philosophy. One of the ancients thought he spake shrewdly when he said that everything we see and everything we do not see is God. In this way he fancied that the divinity was transfused into every separate portion of the world. But although God, in order to keep us within the bounds of soberness, treats sparingly of his essence, still by the true attributes which I have mentioned, he at once suppresses all gross imaginations and checks the audacity of the human mind. His immensity surely ought to deter us from measuring him by our sense, while his spiritual nature forbids us to indulge in carnal or earthly speculation concerning him. With the same view, he frequently represents heaven as his dwelling place. It is true, indeed, that as he is incomprehensible, 
he fills the earth also. But knowing that our minds are heavy and grovel on the earth, he raises us above the worlds that he may shake off our sluggishness and inactivity. And here we have a refutation of the error of the Manichees, who, by adopting two first principles, made the devil almost the equal of God. This assuredly was both to destroy his unity and restrict his immensity. Their attempt to pervert certain passages of Scripture proved their shameful ignorance, as the very nature of the error did their monstrous infatuation. The anthropomorphites also, who dreamed of a corporeal god, because mouth, ears, eyes, hands, and feet are often ascribed to him in Scripture, are easily refuted. For who is so devoid of intellect as not to understand that God, in so speaking, lisps with us as nurses are wont to do with little children? Such modes of expression, therefore, do not so much express what kind of a being God is, as accommodate the knowledge of him to our feebleness. In doing so, he must, of course, stoop far below his proper height. Section 2. But there is another special mark by which he designates himself, for the purpose of giving a more intimate knowledge of his nature. While he proclaims his unity, he distinctly sets it before us as existing in three persons. These we must hold, unless the bare and empty name of deity merely is to flutter in our brain without any genuine knowledge. Moreover, lest anyone should dream of a threefold God, or think that the simple essence is divided by the three persons, we must here seek a brief and easy definition which may effectually guard us from error. But as some strongly inveigh against the term person, as being merely of human inventions, let us first consider how far they have any ground for doing so. When the Apostle calls the Son of God the express image of his person, Hebrews 1.3, he undoubtedly does assign to the Father some subsistence in which he differs from the Son. For to hold with some interpreters that the term is equivalent to essence, as if Christ represented the substance of the Father like the impression of a seal upon wax, were not only harsh but absurd. For the essence of God being simple and undivided and contained in himself entire, in full perfection, without partition or diminution, it is improper, nay, ridiculous, to call it his express image, character. But because the Father, though distinguished by his own peculiar properties, has expressed himself wholly in the Son, he is said with perfect reason to have rendered his person, hypostasis, manifest in him. And this aptly accords with what is immediately added, that he is the brightness of his glory. The fair inference from the Apostle's words is that there is a proper subsistence, hypostasis, of the Father, which shines refulgent in the Son. From this, again, it is easy to infer that there is a subsistence, hypostasis, of the Son, which distinguishes him from the Father. The same holds in the case of the Holy Spirit, for we will immediately prove both that he is God and that he has a separate subsistence from the Father. This, moreover, is not a distinction of essence, which it were impious to multiply. If credit, then, is given to the Apostle's testimony, it follows that there are three persons, hypostases, in God. The Latins, having used the word persona to express the same thing as the Greek hypostasis, it betrays excessive fastidiousness 
and even perverseness to quarrel with the term. The most literal translation would be subsistence. Many have used substance in the same sense. Nor indeed was the use of the term person confined to the Latin church. For the Greek church in like manner, perhaps for the purpose of testifying their consent, have taught that there are three prosopa aspects in God. All these, however, whether Greeks or Latins, though differing as to the word, are perfectly agreed in substance. Section 3 Now then, though heretics may snarl, and the excessively fastidious carp at the word person as inadmissible, in consequence of its human origin, since they cannot displace us from our position that three are named, each of whom is perfect God, and yet that there is no plurality of gods. It is most uncandid to attack the terms which do nothing more than explain what the scriptures declare and sanction. It were better, they say, to confine not only our meanings but our words within the bounds of Scripture, and not scatter about foreign terms to become the future seedbeds of brawls and dissensions. In this way men grow tired of quarrels about words. The truth is lost in altercation, and charity melts away amid hateful strife. If they call it a foreign term, because it cannot be pointed out in Scripture in so many syllables, they certainly impose an unjust law, a law which would condemn every interpretation of Scripture that is not composed of other words of Scripture. But if by foreign they mean that which, after being idly devised, is superstitiously defended, which tends more to strife than edification, which is used either out of place or with no benefit, which offends pious ears by its harshness and leads them away from the simplicity of God's word, I embrace their soberness with all my heart. For I think we are bound to speak of God as reverently as we are bound to think of Him. As our own thoughts respecting Him are foolish, so our own language respecting Him is absurd. Still, however, some medium must be observed. The unerring standard both of thinking and speaking must be derived from the Scriptures. By it all the thoughts of our minds and the words of our mouths should be tested. But in regard to those parts of Scripture which, to our capacities, are dark and intricate, what forbids us to explain them in clearer terms? Terms, however, kept in reverent and faithful subordination to Scripture truth, used sparingly and modestly, and not without occasion. Of this we are not without many examples. When it has been proved that the Church was impelled by the strongest necessity to use the words Trinity and Person, Will not he who still inveighs against novelty of terms be deservedly suspected of taking offense at the light of truth, and of having no other ground for his invective than that the truth is made plain and transparent? Section 4 Such novelty, if novelty it should be called, becomes most requisite when the truth is to be maintained against calumniators who evade it by quibbling. Of this, we of the present day have too much experience in being constantly called upon to attack the enemies of pure and sound doctrine. These slippery snakes escape by their swift and tortuous windings, if not strenuously pursued, and when caught, firmly held. 
Thus the early Christians, when harassed with the disputes which heresies produced, were forced to declare their sentiments in terms most scrupulously exact, in order that no indirect subterfuges might remain to ungodly men, to whom ambiguity of expression was a kind of hiding place. Arius confessed that Christ was God, and the Son of God, because the passages of Scripture to this effect were too clear to be resisted, and then, as if he had done well, pretended to concur with others. But meanwhile, he ceased not to give out that Christ was created and had a beginning like other creatures. To drag this man of wiles out of his lurking places, the ancient church took a further step and declared that Christ is the eternal Son of the Father and consubstantial with the Father. The impiety was fully disclosed when the Arians began to declare their hatred and utter detestation of the term homoousios. Had their first confession, that Christ was God, been sincere and from the heart, they would not have denied that he was consubstantial with the Father. Who dare change those ancient writers as men of strife and contention for having debated so warmly and disturbed the quiet of the church for a single word? That little word distinguished between Christians of pure faith and the blasphemous Arians. Next, Sibelius arose, who counted the names of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as almost non-entities, maintaining that they were not used to mark out some distinction, but that they were different attributes of God, like many others of a similar kind. When the matter was debated, he acknowledged his belief that the Father was God, the Son God, the Spirit God, but then he had the evasion ready, that he had said nothing more than if he had called God powerful and just and wise. Accordingly, he sung another note, that the Father was the Son and the Holy Spirit the Father, without order of distinction. The worthy doctors, who then had the interests of piety at heart, in order to defeat it is man's dishonesty, proclaimed that three subsistence were to be truly acknowledged in the one God that they might protect themselves against torturous craftiness by the simple open truth. They affirmed that a trinity of persons subsisted in the one God, or, which is the same thing, in the unity of God. Section 5 Where names have not been invented rashly, we must beware lest we become chargeable with arrogance and rashness in rejecting them. I wish, indeed, that such names were buried provided all would concur in the belief that the Father, Son, and Spirit are one God, and yet that the Son is not the Father, nor the Spirit the Son, but that each has his peculiar subsistence. I am not so minutely precise as to fight furiously for mere words, for I observe that the writers of the ancient church, while they uniformly spoke with great reverence on these matters, neither agreed with each other, nor were always consistent with themselves. How strange the formula used by councils and defended by Hillary! How extravagant the view which Augustine sometimes takes! How unlike the Greeks are to the Latins! But let one example of variance suffice. The Latins, in translating homoousios, used consubstantialis, consubstantial, intimating that there was one substance of the Father and the Son, and thus using the word substance for essence. Hence Jerome in his letter to Damasus, says it is profane to affirm that there are three substances in God. But in Hillary you will find it said more than a hundred times that there are three substances in God. 
Then how greatly is Jerome perplexed with the word hypostasis? He suspects some lurking poison when it is said that there are three hypostases in God, and he does not disguise his belief that the expression, though used in a pious sense, is improper. If indeed he was sincere in saying this, and did not rather designedly endeavor, by an unfounded calumny, to throw odium on the eastern bishops whom he hated, he certainly shows little candor in asserting that in all heathen schools usia is equivalent to hypostasis, an assertion completely refuted by trite and common use. More courteous and moderation is shown by Augustine, who, although he says that hypostasis is this sense new to Latin ears, is still so far from objecting to the ordinary use of the term by the Greeks, that he is even tolerant of the Latins, who had imitated the Greek phraseology. The purport of what Socrates says of the term in the sixth book of the tripartite history is that it had been improperly applied to this purpose by the unskillful. Hillary charges it upon the heretics as a great crime, that their misconduct had rendered it necessary to subject to the peril of human utterance things which ought to have been reverently confined within the mind, not disguising his opinion that those who do so do what is unlawful, speak what is ineffable, and pry into what is forbidden. Shortly after, he apologizes at great length for presuming to introduce new terms. For after putting down the natural names of Father, Son, and Spirit, he adds that all further inquiry transcends the significance of words, the discernment of sense, and the apprehension of intellect. And in another place, he congratulates the bishops of France in not having framed any other confession, but received without alteration the ancient and most simple confession received by all churches from the days of the apostles. Not unlike this is the Apology of Augustine, that the term had been wrung from him by necessity from the poverty of human language in so high a manner, not that the reality could be thereby expressed, but that he might not pass on in silence without attempting to show how the Father, Son, and Spirit are three. The modesty of these holy men should be an admonition to us not instantly to dip our pen in gall, and sternly denounce those who may be unwilling to swear to the terms which we have devised. Provided they do not in this betray pride or petulance, or unbecoming heat, but are willing to ponder the necessity which compels us so to speak, and may thus become gradually accustomed to a useful form of expression. Let men also studiously beware that in opposing the Arians on the one hand and the Sibelians on the other, and eagerly endeavoring to deprive both of any handle for cavil, they do not bring themselves under some suspicion of being the disciples of either Arius or Sibelius. Arius says that Christ is God, and then mutters that he was made and had a beginning. He says that he is one with the Father, but secretly whispers in the ears of his party, made one, like other believers, though with special privilege. Say, he is consubstantial, and you immediately pluck the mask from this chameleon, though you add nothing to Scripture. Sibelius says that the Father, Son, and Spirit indicate some distinction in God. Say they are three, and he will bawl out that you are making three gods. Say that there is a trinity of persons in one divine essence. You will only express in one word what the Scriptures say, and stop his empty prattle. Should any be so superstitiously precise as not to tolerate these terms, 
still do their worst, they will not be able to deny that when one is spoken of, a unity of substance must be understood, and when three in one essence, the persons in this trinity are denoted. When this is confessed without equivocations, we dwell not on words. But I was long ago made aware, and indeed on more than one occasion, that those who contend pertinaciously about words are tainted with some hidden poison, and therefore that it is more expedient to provoke them purposely than to court their favor by speaking obscurely. (laughs) 